morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, I really appreciate your being here today when uh, we obviously have a lot on our minds and Somalia is possibly not the first thing that we think about when we wake up in the morning. So um, I hope we'll have a wonderful discussion today. It's often actually a virtue to have fewer people in the audience because you can have a more enriching discussion. Um, and so uh, I encourage you to be very active participants and uh, we're fortunate because we have a report in front of us that is extremely timely. Um, the situation in Somalia has not been a good one for the past uh, year in particular. Uh, the approach in Somalia has been uh, one that I've criticized <laughs> very often over the years. Uh, it's, a, it's an approach that has depended upon the presence of foreign armies on Somali soil. It's a presence that is not welcome to many of the Somali public. Um, our efforts uh, in the United States to back the Somali government, originally the transitional federal government, now the recognized government of Somalia, have often not been adequately bolstered by the kind of peace building and reconciliation efforts that really needs to precede the creation of a government entity. On the other hand, as this excellent report from Hate Speech International demonstrates, Al-Shabaab, has worked very hard to do the kind of clan manipulation and public relations and messaging that has proven very effective, not only in Somalia, but in other parts of the globe. And that's why it's so interesting and useful that Hate Speech International has created this report, which really breaks down the mechanics of Al-Shabaab's approach at a time when the US and European strategy inside Somalia is looking very shaky because it, it has become what is essentially an endless occupation by foreign armies inside Somalia, and one that's becoming expensive and possibly impossible to sustain. So um, a political solution of some kind may be necessary, finally. We can't put it off any longer. And understanding exactly what al-Shabaab has been saying, what the Somali people have been hearing, what aspects of their message works, why it works, why it doesn't work, is going to be absolutely essential to crafting a strategy that in the future will deliver the kind of results that the Somali people deserve. Um, it's my great pleasure to launched this report today. I thank the authors of the report for being here. I will introduce them in just a moment. In the meantime, I'm going to invite Mr. Chettle Stormark, the CEO of Hate Speech International, to come on the stage and briefly introduce his organization. Thank you so much. Good morning. Um, Hate Speech International is a rather new NGO, actually. It's been running for a little more than three years, founded in Norway uh, after the terrorist attacks of Anders Bank Breivik on the 22nd of July, 2011. Uh, we focus particularly on extremist groups using violence as a political sort of method to, to achieve their political objectives. And uh, since our establishment in 2013, we have spent much time building research and monitoring extremist groups in Syria and Iraq, Egypt and Yemen. We have worked closely together with local reporters in these countries and uh, we've uh, also now expanded our scope to include Africa, including Libya and uh, other countries in the Maghreb region, as well as focusing on Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. And uh, this is also kind of mathematics in, in, in uh, gaining credits and scores with uh, one of our primary donors, which uh, is the Minister of Foreign Affairs they have there own reporting mechanisms, so we try to be broad or broader than before. 
Uh, we're not monitoring only militant jihadist groups. We also have projects following neo-Nazis and right-wing extremist groups uh, in Scandinavia, Europe, and North America. We've done research on foreign fighters in Ukraine, uh, where fanatics pose a similar threat when they return home as foreign fighters from Syria and Iraq does or do. Traumatized from war experiences and uh, with knowledge about weapons and how to build and use explosive devices, they represent an equal, equally potent threat as the militant jihadists do. Sometimes we also go beyond the framework of regular research. Uh, the last year, we have facilitated a high-level de defection from a former leader of the openly neo-Nazi Finnish resistance movement. People from this group were the founding fathers of the Vigilante Soldiers of Odin movement. You've probably heard of it or not, I don't know. Uh, this defector was uh, formerly a part of the Nordic leadership of the neo-Nazi movement and stayed in close contact with key leaders in most of Europe and North America. We tried to combine the worlds of investigative reporting and academia with uh, probably the, uh, a heavy emphasis on the latter. Uh, HSI is nonetheless a member of also the Global Investigative Journalism Network that gives us access and uh, interaction with uh, the best reporters around the world, particularly the ones running in investigative independent centers. We have some of the best academics on, our, on extreme, extremism research in Norway on our advisory board, and our staff consists on, of both of reporters and academics. So we try basically to build uh, knowledge and bring the most knowledgeable people together and to try to contribute to more insight and higher capacity in the media as well on reporting on the challenges to democracies represented by extremist groups. The extremists exploit the liberal freedoms of democracies in their efforts to undermine the same democracies which they hate so deeply. So fear can lead to bad choices and dangerous assumptions and uh, this is why reports like this one represented here today are so important. Such reports provide critical knowledge uh, on what is happening on the ground and insight explaining why some extremist groups succeed and some don't. We're always looking for new input and new friends to connect with and feel free to reach out uh, to me after uh, the discussions. Last but not least, let me thank the author of the report, Christopher Anzalon, uh, for his brilliant work. It is a true pleasure to introduce this event and also to provide an opportunity to focus on something else than the US election. Uh, it might come in handy these days. And uh, without further ado, I now hand the floor back to Bronwyn. Thank you so much for your attention. Please, thank you. So, uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce um, Stig Jarl Hansen, who will be doing a response. Uh, Stig is difficult to introduce. There's not very much to say about him except that he wrote the book on Al Shabaab, um, the best book on Al Shabaab, and uh, has studied Somalia with an intensity that is truly intimidating, even to those of us who have uh, watched it with great passion for the last oh, 10 years or so. So he is a, a truly excellent person to be here responding to this brilliant report by Christopher Ancelone, who is a PhD candidate at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, he has a wide-ranging expertise that isn't limited to the Horn of Africa, which is particularly useful because these comparative analyses 
bring so much light um, to a study that we as Africanists tend to see within a very particular lens. Um, Christopher is going to introduce his report briefly. Stig will uh, comment on the report, and then we will open it for a general discussion. So please, Christopher, the floor okay, is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you to Speech International and to the Atlantic Council. Um, so basically, the report, in a nutshell, traces the history and evolution of Al-Shabaab's uh, media and information campaign, media and information operations, from uh, its inception sort of in late 2006, early 2007, through to the current day. Um, it, it focuses on a number of sort of, of key themes. First, uh, one which has been covered, I think, quite a lot, which would be the foreign fighter pitching of recruitment. Um, but moving beyond that, I, the report also looks at, try to, I try to expand what we look at as sort of media and info operations into not only sort of the media sort of artifacts and things that they produce, films, audio recordings, uh, photographs, uh, written sort of print material, but also sort of physical things, events particularly that they hold on the ground, which of course ISIS has, has, has made quite famous, but which Al-Shabaab has been doing for quite some time since 2000 and really starting uh, heavily in 2008 when they began to capture large uh, urban areas like Kismayo. And so to look at that as a very in integral part, especially on, uh, in a domestic lens, and also looking at Al-Shabaab media um, as a whole, ha having a number of different components, the sort of a local, a regional, and then of course a transnational or globalist kind of focus. And for the domestic audience, these events are really as important, I would argue, as anything that they distribute sort of online. What's interesting about the media that we often see is that Often it is true, of course, that it's aimed mostly externally in terms of, I mean, we can tell that by how they, what, what languages it's in, you know, and, and if it's subtitled in which language or not. However, even some of their externally aimed media networks, like Al Qataib, the main media foundation, uh, started really in 2011, 2012, when they began to be pushed back by the sort of renewed series of Amisom, Somali governments and militia offensives. Uh, to produce materials also in Somali only. I mean, not, not many, but there are a number of, of films, for example, which are only in Somali that they never translated into either Arabic or English or any other, or even into Swahili. And then, of course, beginning really in 2012, uh, though they did this earlier, but really ramping up in 2012, there's a whole sort of body of, of literature and media, or literature might be a bit generous, but um, primary literature in Swahili, not all of it is, is produced only by Al-Shabaab. There are also sort of affiliate organizations like Al-Muhajirun in East Africa, and there are others which it's indeterminate in terms of who produced it, but clearly which are pro-Shabaab uh, in, their, in their focus. So looking at sort of on the ground, uh, you know, Friday prayers, the, particularly the, the communal prayers which, which end the two Muslim uh, festival, well, holidays, Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. So these are very important for al-Shabaab. They continue to be important to this day, you know, uh, in October when Eid al-Adha, you know, uh, sorry, before October at the end of September when it was Eid al-Adha, they had communal prayers. Of course, they, they don't control, you know, uh, central parts of Mogadishu anymore, but these are still very key events where you will see uh, top uh, insurgent leaders appear um, often, whether they be regional governors or other, Fuad Muhammad uh, Khalaf Shangola, you know, very important ideologues will appear at these, these events. 
Um, then moving on to looking at uh, another area is, of course, East Africa, that East Africa becomes, has always been important for Al-Shabaab, probably has been arguably the most important in terms of recruitments for foreign fighters, um, probably since its inception, even though it, it receives much less, it has received much less attention than recruits who are coming from Western Europe, from Northern Europe, from, uh, from North America, of course, but that there is a, an uptick in the number of materials which Al-Shabaab and its affiliates are producing, beginning really in 2000, ratcheting up really in 2012 and, and continuing into 2013, that both in the number of, of pieces written or audiovisual or audio that are in Swahili or also in Swahili, but also that are, um, that are in terms of the number of, of Kenyan specifically foreign fighters, which, which we see appearing at their, not only their, in their media materials, but also at their events. So for example, when they formalized their affiliation with Al-Qaeda Central in, in 2012, it, they had a number of official sort of celebratory events. One was in Kismayo. In Kismayo, they had a number of Swahili sort of uh, foreign fighters there. Um, then looking also at something that I call a kind of jihadi journalism, which is this counter-messaging idea. So beginning really in, you know, really early 2009, 2010, where they were, would have a, a media kind of dueling with Amazon. So they would attack an Amazon base. Amazon would say, no, they didn't. We didn't lose anybody. Uh, they're lying. And then, of course, the truth seems to be somewhere in the middle. So then Al-Shabaab would release either photographs or some sort of visual proof with IDs where you, where you could read. Um, they did this a number of times, Daynile in, in, in uh, October of 2011 when they killed, you know, between 50 and, uh, 50 and, and they claimed a hundred, over 100, but somewhere probably around 50 to 70 Burundian Amazon uh, soldiers, um, which Amazon said that they lost 10. And then Al-Shabaab said they killed 101. And then the truth seems to be, but the New York Times did some reporting on the ground, and it seems that even locals who are not pro-Al-Shabaab said, well, there were about you know, between 50 and, and, and 70 bodies who had Amazon, Burundian Amazon uniforms. So looking at that, so this kind of jihadi journalism also, and I include in that also the, um, the use of this lone wolf kind of idea. So they, they whether it be the Woolwich uh, murder of, of Lee Rigby, um, and they're very, the media apparatus is very, very good at knowing what's going to receive uh, a lot of attention in the West. So for example, you know, in, in their film about Westgate, there's a minute and a half maybe where they talk about, oh, you can do this in your own countries in Canada and the UK and in, 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 Amer in the US and it won't cost very much, it'll have a great effect and you can do it. I mean, this is a minute and a half of a film which is, you know, an, an hour, over an hour long, right? So, but this one and a half minute, I was, I was um, in Canada actually at McGill and uh, the amount of attention that this one little segment got was really, even in Canada, was quite, quite remarkable. And there are other examples of that as well. Um, and then looking uh, sort of also at how Al-Shabaab harnessed its media apparatus when it began to decline territorially. So this is interestingly what we see, and we see this with other jihadi groups as well, we see this including with ISIS, that they have a stock of footage which they record, but they don't necessarily always release right away. So when in 2012 there was a, a major film under the shade of Sharia where they use all of this film that they recorded the year previously in 2011 in terms of like outreach with certain clan 
elders in certain regions, particularly in Bayan Bakul, which they had reported on in sort of affiliated or pro-insurgent uh, Somali sort of insurgent media, not official, fully official Shabab media. Um, but so, I mean, in terms of, you can tell they released photographs, things like this, but they had this footage which they decided to, for whatever reason, keep back. And then they use it at this time when, really when they're facing a lot of uh, significant pressure. And then finally looking at the competition between Islamic State, ISIS, and Al-Shabaab, and how that's played out both uh, in the media landscape, both from the sort of pro-ISIS side and also from the, the Shabaab side. And the Shabaab side has been much more muted than the ISIS side. The ISIS uh, media, of course, has been trying to uh, really push this um, first Shabab, and then when it was clear that Shabab as a whole wasn't going to move over, then members, individual members of Shabab to move over. And they've had some success. I mean, the, the exact estimates, of course, are very difficult. I think the highest estimate I've seen, and, and, and they can talk more about this, I think, uh, were you know, two or 300. But in terms of the, the ISIS and ISIS-affiliated media, there have been nowhere near that many who've appeared on film. And that may be because they don't want that to happen, but this image of power that they attempt to project is, at least in the media front, quite, quite limited. And that's sort of how the report closes, is looking at this ongoing competition between ISIS and Shabab. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's a very interesting report. And, and uh, the good thing about uh, Christopher is that he has access to so many primary sources and he knows how to use that access. Uh, I'm not sure if it has been without uh, challenges during your professional career to have uh, just that. But I think one of the things that really fascinates me with the Shebab is how they take advantage of the lack of propaganda strategies, the lack in propaganda strategies from the other East African countries. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, you had a big attack against a village close to Lamu called Mpeketone, where you had the uh, Kenyan president, Uhuru Kenyatta, saying that it was his own uh, political opposition, basically, who was behind the attack. He said in the public media in Kenya, he said, this is not a Shebab attack. This is basically done by people that are against my rule. That's what he said. He went out in the uh, media and he said there were never Shebab fighters in Mpektoni. And the way that Shebab uh, handled this situation is in one sense illustrating for aspects of their propaganda strategy. What they did was to launch a video from Mpektoni with a picture of a Shebab fighter sitting at the police station with his uh, uh, basically legs on the table in the police station in Mpeketone, playing the words of uh, the Kenyan president in the background, where Uhuru Kenyatta was saying, there, are, there were never any Shebab soldiers in Mpeketone. And then afterwards, they frame it in the way that they are saying, look, we are here. Your leaders are lying to you. And the good thing for the Shebab is really the problems of the region, that they can take advantage of what's going on in the world and tilt it and reinterpret it. So I checked out one of the largest outlets in Somalia yesterday, Al-Andalus, the Al-Andalus radio station. And surprise, to, uh, surprise uh, ladies and gentlemen, you probably know what the largest uh, issue there was. It was basically the American election. So they were commenting on the Donald Trump, they were commenting on Donald Trump, and they, of course, put out all his uh, hostile speeches against Muslims. So that's what they put on online. Um, and that's how they twist things. You know, you have 
a lot of events that have been taking place previously. You have conflicts with Ethiopia, conflicts with Ethiopia that previously have been interpreted like a conflict between Somalia and Ethiopia is reinvented in a kind of Islamist language. So they are saying that this is a clash between religions instead of being a clash between uh, nations. But in one sense also at the same time then playing on uh, nationalist currencies, although using the language of jihadism. So in one sense it's reinterpreted. And that's also something we can say today when I looked at this uh, webpage Al-Andalus yesterday, I think it's easy to see that Ethiopia now is a major feature in Sheba propaganda. So you always have this twisting of reality, uh, actually picking parts of reality uh, and turning it around. And that has had some really strange effects, ladies and gentlemen. I have a colleague in the UK, David Anderson, He's a respectable academician, he's a good academician, but unfortunately for him, he was featured half an hour in a Sheba propaganda video, saying things about Kenya, that's probably true. What he's saying is true, he was criticizing the president. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I also had the strange uh, pleasure of featuring on one of these radio shows, 15 minutes they used for me, talking about the uh, country, uh, uh, interview where I was talking about the counterinsurgency strategy of, of uh, so the Somali government. So uh, that, that, that's one thing that we need to think about when dealing with the Shabab, is to actually order and fix the regional approach to information. And that's not easy because it's a lot of vested interest in the various countries around. So, and there's a lot of use of this information. And ladies and gentlemen, sometimes that's also, of course, something that's happening in the West, you know. And, and this leaves things open for the Shabab. And I think it's, uh, it's rather uh, useful. I think another aspect that uh, Christopher is touching upon that is very good that he's touching upon is the more mundane, low-level Sheba propaganda, the type of Sheba propaganda that focuses locally. And before this was perhaps a much stronger. So you talked about uh, in the shade of Sharia, uh, where basically you have, a, I would call it a law and order video, where you have a lot of crime statistics before and after Sheba entered by Doha. Uh, just recently, both me and Christoph, we talked a little bit about it. Shebab added probably uh, a very nice picture of their uh, new police car in middle Yuba. We suspect a little bit that maybe it's the only police car, but uh, uh, you know, so, and I also seen Shebab propaganda focusing on road building, road construction, aid, handing out aid. And I think this is also something that can be really efficient. So they are focusing on that they are doing governance. They are focusing on highlighting this information for, uh, from other, uh, other states. Um, I think the third aspects that I would like, uh, aspect that I would like to bring up is probably our blind zone. Because as things are going now, you have a lot of propaganda coming out, especially in Kenya and also in Tanzania, that is really it's really hard to say what it is. You know, you have some is coming from uh, Al-Hijira, Al-Mujarin. In Tanzania, there's a lot of stuff coming from sources that we really don't know what is, but they are talking about the Shabbat. It's hard to say. And uh, my sadness, but it's hard to work with both for me and Christopher, is that there might be a lot of, uh, for example, mobile phone videos that are circulating, that are not really put on the net, for example, in Tanzania and Kenya, that are circulating around, like happened with Boko Haram in its early phase. You know, they use another media that we're not really used to. So it's really hard to really understand what's going on in Tanzania and uh, in Kenya, uh, propaganda-wise. But I guess my, my main point is that uh, the Shebab are pretty good at twitching real evidence 
silence and, and uh, making it, interpreting it into their uh, world. And the things that they are using as a foundation is actually a reality. They're just twisting it. Mm. I would, um, I would like to open this to the, uh, to the audience quickly. Um, but it, it, one of the things that it strikes me as interesting is this, um, this reference that you made, Stig, and I believe that you may also have made, Christopher, um, to reality, which has always been a very hard to establish in the Somali context. I think one of the defining characteristics of the efforts in Somalia is, has been to define what is reality. Who is the insurgent group? Um, for a long time, we, we described the transitional federal government as the government, and al-Shabaab as the insurgents, even though al-Shabaab controlled all the territory, delivered all the services, appeared to have more support from the public. Um, and you yourself have just mentioned that a lot of the times the propaganda that they're using is not unreal. I mean, they are doing things like providing law and order and then advertising their actual conduct. And on the other hand, they are, they are twisting reality. It would be interesting to me to hear a little bit more on what, um, what, where is the line? To what extent now are al-Shabaab playing a role that the Somalis are interpreting as useful to them? And to what extent is this image that Shabaab is promoting actually a falsehood? And then what are the ways that they are using these, these um, activities that are, again, constructive from an objective point of view to further a jihadi agenda? Um, just, just briefly, a word on that would be really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, the first thing I would like to add is that, uh, you know, inside Somalia, the Shabab have been playing their game for quite a long time. They had a period where they had large advantages in 2006 until 2009, because 2006 they were a part of the Sharia courts. I was there during the Sharia courts, and it was really peaceful. So they were the really harnessing the peace, producing the peace. It was a kind of a paradise uh, for the people they liked. Uh, and uh, they projected that image into the insurgency. The trouble from 2009 until 2013 was that they tried to do governance. And at times, they weren't that good. You know, they put foreign fighters outside of Kishmayo to do the uh, taxing. And that was a very mixed experience, to put it uh, lightly. And, and uh, so in one sense, they kind of ruined that a uh, little bit of their image inside Somalia. What they need to play on now is basically local clan animosities. Uh, so you have a lot of things going on in the lower Shabelle. You have the government army is recruited from one clan that occupied the area before. So this opens up for some ideal situations for them. Uh, and all these local conflicts can be twisted and turned by the Shabab. Um, so I'm not sure if the Somalis really trust the interpretation of the Shabab. They know that some of the things that they are saying about the police is true. But I am not sure if this has anything to do with international jihad to do. But my warning is that I'm not sure if this is the case in Kenya. If you go to the Kenyans, they never saw Shebab in the open. If you go to Mayengo, you talk to the youth in Mayengo in Nairobi and Mombasa. Uh, the Kenyan security services have been suppressing this heavily. There's no big channels, but there's a large sympathy in some areas towards the Shebab. But for now, the channels of recruitment are not functioning properly. But it's a potential there that we haven't really properly dealt with. And uh, the Kenyan youth hasn't really seen the Shebab up front in doing governance. So they can believe a lot of these old narratives that they used to use in Somalia. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of to just, to, uh, 
jump off on what Stig talk, was talking about, the, this idea of, of a kind of law, not maybe not justice, but a law and order, even if it's very, very, very harsh. So moving into areas in 2000, uh, I mean, certainly under the courts, and then again in 2007, 2008, and one of the first things that they do when they enter these large urban sort of centers, urban sort of towns, and uh, Kismayo, Marka, other places, is they, they make public announcements in the, the main square about the implementation of their version of Sharia or their interpretation of Sharia. And if we look at some of the the offenses or the crimes that they focus on, some of them are, are you know, um, sort of ideological in the terms of like social behavior, things like uh, fornication, things like this, but, but most of them are economic actually. So most of them, they talk about highway banditry, they talk about theft, they talk about sort of wanton violence that all of these different competing groups in the areas that they, that they take over have been committing and that they're going to basically have a monopoly on violence and a monopoly on force, but that, which is going to be very harsh because of their interpretation of it, but it's going to be a semblance, relatively speaking. So rather than having to deal with three different groups on different parts of, of Kismayo, you have one, in theory, one central administration. Of course, they tried to do this with other, with Hezbollah Islam, and then they just, they do kind of what ISIS did in, in Raqqa. Except I think Shabab was more involved in, in actually taking Kismayo than ISIS was in, in really taking Raqqa, and then they kick all the other groups out. So in Deir Azur and other places in Syria, ISIS does something very similar, where it either participates among a coalition of other kind of a very sort of radical, you know, jihadi groups, whether it's Nusra or the former, formerly, group formerly known as Nusra, and then they take over. So Shabab kind of has a conflict then with some of its allies in Kismayo, but it says, okay, rather than having to pay, for example, multiple different groups, you, you have to pay us now. We're going to tax you, but at least so you may not want to pay us either, but it's somewhat better than you know that this is, in theory, again, this is what you're going to have to pay us. This is what we're going to want. And now you're not going to have to deal with this, this militia here and this militia here and this militia here or this you know, warlord here, this warlord here, this warlord here. You have one central kind of administration. So this idea of justice, even if it's very harsh, and then the use of sort of symbolic language, even for this police truck, they're sort of domestic force, um, and a lot of things that ISIS, we think of with ISIS now, I think Shabab really did first, actually. So this, this concentration on this, this, they call the police force the Jaysh al-Hisba. Hisba is this calculation, historically, of the market. It was a market inspector that the sultan or the government would send to the market to regulate scale. So that's really historically what it means, but they've brought in Hisba to a whole range of of different kinds of economic and social activities. ISIS has done something similar. Other jihadi groups do something similar in, in Mali, which I know Stig is, is working on now, in Ansar Adin and some of these other groups. And then the other thing about Kenya, in terms of the messaging um, that Bronwyn talked about, about how, where they don't actually have to, they manipulate it, but they don't have to do as much as I think they have to do, perhaps in, on some of the Somalia issues, Somali issues, is the, the killing probably the extrajudicial killing of a number of very prominent and very controversial Muslim, Kenyan Muslim preachers, from Abu Drogo to Ibrahim uh, Omar to uh, yeah. Abu Bakr Makaburi between 2012 and, and up, to, up to today, 2015, 2016. So the first part, for example, just to take one example of the Westgate, of their long Westgate film, the first 20 or 30 minutes of it, they take almost whole cloth, adding some commentary, but not much, 
from uh, an Al Jazeera English documentary on these extrajudicial killings, possibly done by the, by the Kenyan anti-terrorism sort of units of the police. And this has an impact in every, particularly in, in Shabab and Shabab affiliate media aimed at, at, at sort of a Kenyan Swahili speaking audience. This issue of the, the murders of these preachers, these sheikhs is very important. And there are some Shabab uh, materials where the f Kenyan foreign fighters themselves, either inside Kenya or inside Somalia, specifically say one of the reasons that we're fighting the Kenyan government and that we believe that it's illegitimate is because they've killed our, our sheikhs, our preachers, like Rogo, like Makaburi, like these other people. So basically, this is an example of us, of our own government, who's, you know, we're Kenyans that they're persecuting us, and therefore the Shabab argument that we should highlight this sort of religious transnational sort of globalist religious identity is really you know more important i mean shabab as fig you know has has wrote in his book has been a bit you know mixed on this right it, it taps into these different uh, identities as it kind of sees fit but um, and then on the clans sort of manipulating taking advantage of of missteps by the by the governments some of uh, shabab's sort of sharia schools and institutes have actually been aimed at specific clan groups or sub-clan groups in terms of like you'll have the Ma'ahads, the institute of some historical figure, you know, like Imam Shafi'i uh, for this clan, you know, uh, or for this sub-clan, like specifically for the youth particularly from this uh, social group. Like, so that, I've found that interesting. They don't really talk so much about it, but they say yes, it's really for people from in this area for this sort of social group, established social group. The formidable machine, absolutely. Um, I'd like to open it for comments and questions from our participants, if anyone would like to jump in. Hi, Lang. Good morning. Uh, thank morning. you. Very interesting. Oh. Um, two questions related, I think. Uh, one, the evolution of the technology. When they started in 2006, seven, and eight, uh, cell phones and the internet were not as prevalent as they are now, and radio would have been more of the medium. So could you talk a little bit about the evolution of their target technology and so forth? And the related question is, um, are the, the architects of this, are they all homegrown Somalis, or are they getting technical assistance from the diaspora? And if they're homegrown, are they Somalis who have been educated somewhere overseas? Yeah, I think this is a highly interesting question. If I can start with a diaspora question about the, the help at the start. Uh, actually, uh, one of the uh, two of the major uh, Shabab sites in the early history of the Shabab can be traced back to Scandinavia. Uh, you had a Swedish uh, right-wing activist, and maybe Hetil knows a little bit about this, that turned into a jihadi that was, had the nickname Abu Usama al Swede, who ran one of the sites out of Jotunborg. Uh, but he was taken over. Uh, this guy is now in Syria, so he, he left Sweden and he ended up in Syria. In Norway, you had the court case with regards to the Khatib site. So there was a Khatib uh, media site that was hosted in Norway, but uh, the Norwegian government lost the court case. So it wasn't proved that this was the same Khatib media site that started out. But it seemed at least that one of the big media sites had some serious help from, from outside, and it was hosted outside, and it functioned from outside. Um, I think uh, 
you know, uh, at the start, uh, Shebab issued propaganda online, uh, and they built up their radio uh, network uh, after a while. First, by taking over local radio stations. After a while, when they were on their height of the power, they built up a radio chain of around six Andalus radio stations. So it was a chain that had uh, certain core programs. Some of them are still running. You know, the world uh, today went on air yesterday commenting on Trump. <laughs> and, uh, and, and quite drastic. But it, when they lost territory, the radio also be became problematic. So the, the last uh, no is Radio Andalus. It puts radio uh, broadcast online. It also airs them, but as I understand it, it's mobile. So it's going from village to village. Uh, I think that's the state of the radio, and I think the radio is very important because it reached the local Somalis. There's, um, in terms of the technology, I mean, there's a clear shift sort of beginning in, in 2009, um, where the early Shabab videos are, are very grainy in terms of the footage, most of them. Um, the narrative is, is much more, uh, it's not as fluid. It seems not, it's not as well kind of put together. Sort of beginning in 2009, particularly with a film called Lebeke Osama, or we're at your call, or we heed your call, Osama. The, this is uh, sort of the first film that I, I really would pinpoint as the beginning of a really high tech evolution of Shabab media. It's, it's their highest, at that time, it's their highest in terms of the, the, the graphics and the quality in terms of the, also the size of the file. And then the narrative is beginning to become much more. So you have this audio message from, from uh, the Amir Ahmed Godane essentially pledging loyalty to Osama bin Laden, who didn't, at least in public, respond. Um, but it's, it's not just, you know, here's the message and then there's some other parts that will just jam together. It actually runs through the narrative, and they have this cohesive narrative, and it closes with the photographs of Obama meeting with various Muslim, uh, heads of Muslim states that are not, certainly in the jihadi community, not widely respected, the Saudi king, King Abdullah, sort of others, uh, you know, Musharraf, these people meeting with them, like this, these are your Muslim leaders, just like ours in Somalia, these are the people that they're working with. They show Sheikh Sharif with, with um, the president of Ethiopia, they say, look, I mean, this is the person who's supposedly representing Somali interests. And they continue this, and what's very interesting is even when they begin to be pushed out of all of the uh, major urban centers, the media doesn't, the media slows down somewhat, particularly the print, sort of the externally aimed print media. So they used to produce these daily, um, not only military reports, but primarily military reports, short little um, blurbs about we did this here, we did this here. They also do talk about civilian things. They, they literally used to, um, in 2009, for example, 2010, would release these daily. Then that went to weekly, and then it's, now it's at monthly. So they'll release one sort of large omnibus monthly thing. So they, they, uh, the last one was for, they haven't done one for, and they do it by the Islamic Lunar Month. I haven't seen one for Muharram. I've seen one for, for the, the, the end of the last year, the World Kid, I think, right? And um, so there's been a slowing there, but the quality in terms of their audiovisual material has, if anything, gone up or maintained a steady sort of level of, of, of in terms of production quality, which has been very interesting. It hasn't um, gone down as you may expect. They did lose some of the terrestrial radio stations they had at that height in 2010 also. They had just started a, a terrestrial television domestic broadcast of, 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 I think, Al-Qatad Al television, or I forget what they called it, 
I mean, this didn't last very long as they began being pushed out in 2011 or, or withdrawing. Um, in terms of the foreigners, it's, it's hard to tell. There are certainly, in the externally based media, there is certainly uh, a very prominent role. So for example, for English language material, beginning in 2010, there's a particular uh, foreign fighter. They've never named him, uh, even with a nom de guerre. We don't know who he is. We know he's a Brit because of his accent. We don't know, I haven't seen anything in terms of really about his identity and Shabab is not even again said it, you know, Abu, whoever, Al, whatever, Britanni. Mm. They haven't said anything, but he's always, he appears first in 2010 in a series of films basically telling the Burundian and the Ugandan public, you really should pressure your government to leave Somalia. Why, do, why are your soldiers here? They're dying for no reason. And there's one before, right before the, the Kampala bombings, and there's one right after, and the messages are linked. And he's appeared in every single Shabab, uh, not, not just a film, but also recording. So after Westgate, Gildane had a message, uh, an audio message about Westgate. There was another version of it, which was this foreign fighter, British foreign fighter, voicing it over, right? And called the, the, it's called the Battle of Badr in, 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 in uh, Nairobi, Badr al-Nairobi. Uh, uh, and so he keeps appearing in all of these, uh, the sort of English language sort of films, the same person, um, or he'll be voicing over when they translate films. Um, but they have, they have sort of a segmented, often so very important figures in, in one media, like this gentleman here, Abdul Aziz Abu Musab, who is their military spokesman. Well, I mean, I guess it's clear who he is. He, appears daily on, on Radio Al-Andalus, on Radio Al-Furqan, uh, their other sort of media, sort of radio station, delivering these media reports. He appears after every major sort of attack and he'll give this kind of interview to Somali language and also insurgent Somali language kind of um, media outlets. He rarely, he has I think one, once or twice, I, actually I think only once, really crossed over and been shown briefly in a, an Al-Qatib media film. So it's interesting that there does seem to be this segmentation mm. between the domestic um, and, the, and the sort of transnational media. This is not quite as true with the regional media, especially now. Kenya, uh, particularly Kenya, but is a, a major feature also of media which is aimed sort of the Qatar media which is aimed mostly externally. But domestically, there's, it's more, I think, limited. I, would, I mean, I would cautiously sort of say that. Yeah. Partly, yes. I mean, what's interesting also, even though I think also about the Kenyan media, so they've also been somewhat maybe less inconsistent, but they've had sort of mixed messages maybe in terms of the first part of the Westgate film, not the part that they take from the, the documentary, but the part which is being narrated by this British foreign fighter actually, um, talks about the colonial creation of Kenya. And in um, Shabab and Shabab-affiliated media in Swahili, they talk about Basically, I mean, they compare Kenya basically what Britain did in Kenya, according to them, is similar to what it did in, in, in Palestine, in the Levant, in Israel and Palestine, where basically, and they describe Kenya as the African, the, the Britain's African Israel. They want sort of a, a client state in the region that they can kind of work through to kind of suppress uh, and sort of impose their will. And this is really how they talk about Kenya. And they talk even to Kenyan Muslims. They have this religious sort of pan-Islamic, <coughs> Uh, identity, but they also talk in, in terms of uh, 
you know, that trying to, you know, appeal to certain forms of Kenyan, uh, non-Somali Kenyan and also Somali Kenyan kinds of um, uh, sort of group pride. So for the, the Kenyan Somalis, they talk about how, you know, the cleaving off of, of, the, of the Northeast province from Somalia. They talk about Ogaden, they talk about this kind of thing that, and they talk about it really in a very Somali, Somali, Somali-centric, Somali identity kind of way, not so much purely in this kind of religious, you know, kind of way that you're Muslim, so we should all be together. They really, so they've been somewhat inconsistent, I think. I mean, and their early media, their, their logo for their media department, which used to be just called media department, um, was a very, one of the very early ones, sort of either maybe not officially Shabab, but proto-Shabab was a map of, of Somalia, actually, with, I think, two crossed Kalashnikovs and like a black flag, not the, the one that they use now, the ISIS, the, that ISIS also uses, but one of their early flags. So it actually is a map of Somalia, which is also, so, even at that time, is inconsistent with some of their messaging, where they're talking about, uh, you know, quoting bin Laden and Zawahiri about the global ummah and this kind of thing. It's, it's somewhat fragmented, I think. Maybe not fragmented, but it's, it's inconsistent. Yeah, I, I think uh, the Kenyan and also the Tanzanian efforts of the Shabab also shows this ability to reinterpretate local narratives because at least at the start in some of their Swahili, uh, as you said, some of their Swahili publications, you had this focus on a lot of the uh, anti-colonial rhetorics that I see in other places, but it was reframed and reinterpreted into an Islamist narrative, you know, before your masters were British, no, they are the Zionists. Uh, this is not always easy, you know, some of the biggest contradiction in Sheba media I've seen in relations to the Kenyan coast and in relations to Zanzibar, where in Zanzibar it's a big dilemma for the Sheba because most of the recruits from Tanzania are from Tanga, they are not from Zanzibar, but still they wanted to tap into this conflict, so they had to redress this conflict in an Islamist language. So it's not Zanzibarians who were killed it's, uh, during the election times. It's not Zanzibarians who suffered during the Zanzibarian revolution. It was the Islamic Ummah. It was an attack at the Ummah, and it's very important. And the same thing is the big paradox they face in Kenya. You know, they will have a lot of recruits from the uh, Nairobi area, but still they have to tap into the coastal narrative. And then they have to reinterpret the coastal narrative also. It's not a regional narrative anymore. It's an Islamic uh, narrative. And this is pushed so far. You know, the, the, I think the, the uh, largest push I've seen is the Wagala massacre in 1983 of for people from the Ugadeni clan inside Kenya, who for some Somalis was reinterpreted as a nationalist massacre, but then the Shebab suddenly interpreted it as a kind of massacres of Muslims. And I never saw that before the Shebab tried to do that. And I think this in the Tanzanian uh, uh, case and this in the Kenyan case, it's a big dilemma. It's almost impossible for Shebab to, uh, to, to solve. So you've seen, uh, effect, it has even affected the I don't think the, there has been, but I don't think the Tanzanians have developed this as far as the Kenya, so you know, it's really hard to say what's going on in Tanzania, but uh, you know, it hasn't been as hands-on. No, it's a big cottage industry inside Nairobi with contrary violent extremism, as you probably are aware of. And uh, but the Tanzanian, have, they are not there yet. Just really one, really yeah. quick, uh, to take a uh, sort of an ISIS or pro-ISIS example, the where I think in some cases they're talking past each other. So there was a very short-lived pro-ISIS uh, media 
out, uh, sort of online, probably only media outlet around the time in, in October when ISIS media was really focusing on certain, er on going through all of the areas, Arabian Peninsula, the Maghreb, Somalia, to try to get local, those organizations there uh, to, or at least members of them to go cleave off. Uh, and it called itself the Al-Habasha Media Foundation or something like this, right? So then the, one of the State Department's officials, sort of the communicate, I don't know, I forget the name of the office that handles it, but their account said, well, why are you calling yourself Habasha when uh, you say that you're representing Somalis because it's Ethiopia, but of course, so then they're talking about Habasha, but they're talking about this entire region, just like ISIS has all these, we or, or Al-Qaeda or these other groups have these, weird, they go back to these historical names, like calling Egypt, you know, Ard al-Kinana, which nobody talks about, or Khorasan and this kind of thing. So by Habasha, they're really talking about something very different from the counter-messaging. Which may, I mean, in fairness, may be the, the average kind of person who may not know that Habasha is this whole region uh, historically and sort of in Islamic history is not going to recognize that. But I think some of the audience that they're talking to is going to be maybe more in tune with some of this kind of trivia kind of thing. But in a way that they're talking, the two parties are not really talking about the same thing. One is taking a very modernist, okay, Habashi is Ethiopian. And, but this pro-ISIS sort of media outlet was talking about Habasha and this much broader kind of, and building on this kind of historical, you know, the use of all this term, Hispa and, and, and all of these, this uh, sort of terminology. And, and, and in terms of also that, you know, how, you know, with Salafism and these groups, in some ways, I mean, of course, they, you know, whether it's ISIS or Shabab, they draw upon Salafi uh, ideas, but some of the methodology is a bit different from sort of, maybe orthodox Salafism, at least in some scholastic Salafism, let's call it, in some ways, in the sense that they, in theory at least, right, Salafis are against wedding themselves too closely to historical figures, even very famous ones like the founders of the, the four Sunni legal schools, right, because they think that this is elevating, I mean, I'm simplifying this, but elevating uh, human beings to a role that they shouldn't have. But speaking specifically about Shabab, they will quote very specific historical figures, and, and I think it's because, I would argue it's because, in a way, the authenticity, this kind of authenticity, we're quoting this very famous scholar, uh, you know, whether it's Shafi or, or, or Anas bin Malik or whoever, uh, or Bukhari, and so therefore from that, we want to get this kind of look, we're quoting these very, you know, you recognize them as legitimate, we want to be seen in that light, so then this is not as Salafi, I think, as some of their other ideas, right, theological kind of cartwheels. Ambassador Shin. Uh, two questions, if I may. What are the arguments against uh, either philosophical or logistical uh, in destroying the radio, the Shabab radio stations? Question number one. And number two, going back to the Swahili recruitment effort, do you have any estimate of the num current number of uh, fighters uh, who are part of Al-Shabaab who come from the Swahili-speaking areas in Kenya, Tanzania, Eastern Congo, Northern Mozambique, et cetera. And going beyond what you've said already in terms of, of the recruitment effort in the Swahili-speaking world, obviously most of these folks are, are going to be from the Kenya coast because it's contiguous to Somalia. But is there, has anything been learned in terms of whether any are coming from Eastern Congo, Northern Mozambique, uh, remote parts of Tanzania? Do we know anything about that? I can just speak for the, in terms of their, from let's say 2010 onward, in terms of their 
the foreign fighters that are featured in their media, which this is the big caveat, this is, these are the, the foreign fighters that they're showing, I would say that the majority of them uh, are identi either clearly identified as Kenyan or, or speak Swahili. Uh, but most of the time they're actually clearly identified as being from Kenya. I haven't seen any, uh, again, this is limited to their, their sort of publicly available media, any from, from Congo or Mozambique, or at least who are identified in that way. Um, I know some of the ISIS films aimed at Somalia have featured people from both Ethiopia and from S Somali foreign fighters as well as Ethiopian foreign fighters. But in Shabab media, I haven't seen—I haven't seen at least any from sort of these more so other regions. Really, they're from Kenya. There's some from Tanzania. There's some from Uganda. Uh, I can't remember seeing anyone from from and you know some from sort of southern Sudan, but not any from from some of these other areas that you mentioned in Basque. You talked uh, about uh, hitting the media station of the Shabab. I don't know if it's a prioritized target or not, but what I know is that the Shabab is very afraid of it. That's why they keep the last, uh, what I've been told is that the last uh, broadcaster is mobile. It moves around, really. Uh, so they want to build up some kind of resilience to, to uh, prevent it. Uh, estimates of Kenyan and, and Tanzanian foreign fighters, um, they, they, Supreme Council of Kenyan Muslims, they say that they have at least 900 returnees that they are trying to deal with. So that's what they're saying. And uh, I know all the estimates from when they had regional control, you would talk to 300. Uh, adding to some of the problems there are uh, population groups that is hard to define. So you have the Bayunis around the Lamu area, but they are not only around the Lamu area, they are in Kismayo, they're very closely connected and never care that much about the borders, but you can see that by union recruitment to the Shabam have been quite large. You know, they have some big characters uh, from, from the Bayuni. And then, of course, you have the Somalis that goes back and forth uh, across the border as well. So sometimes this is a little bit hard. Uh, today, it's probably declined a little bit, but it's hard to estimate. But I think it may be two, three hundred, not today. Uh, some of the big issues here are also the returnees. And they seem to have units also that are specifically there's some who are in Kenya, and there's some, uh, I'm sorry, in Somalia, and there's some that yeah. seem to be tasked with operating almost solely in along the border, but solely in Kenya. Uh, I mean, some of the, the media materials have highlighted attacks in Kenya, but by units that seem to be based actually on the Kenyan side and not on the Somali, not uh, crossing from. And for, from the uh, for the Bayunis and of some Kenyans. Yeah, for the Bayunis, this is actually makes uh, sense because they always traverse across the borders. They have their connections on both sides of the borders. And I think some of the most active units inside Kenya from the Shabam, they are drawing from a lot of Bayuni recruits, especially around Lamu. Yeah. 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 Uh, two questions. One, how are their media operations financed? What's, what's the revenue stream? And two, how much of their media products are targeted specifically for mobile devices? Yeah, that's a... Uh, the setting financing is hard. I mean, a lot of their financing is domestic. I mean, yeah, uh, that's uh, important. For a point. And also that a lot of their, the terms of production, it doesn't require a lot once you have the sort of the software and, and the, you know, the sort of hardware, software and hardware that it's not going to take in terms of its production necessarily once you have it. A lot of sort of... Um, constant reinvestment in terms of in terms of updating software, but not in terms of so the actual I think cost of production is going to be quite low, relatively speaking. And then also the jihadi films 
generally, um, I mean, certainly going back, but also really to this day, are usually produced in a number of different versions. There's going to be the, the high, and this is for all groups. This is for the Al-Qaeda groups. This is for ISIS. This is for the Pakistani Taliban uh, groups, um, the Afghan Taliban, the Haqqanis. They'll produce one version, which is the top sort of highest quality version, and then it'll go down from there. And they'll literally talk about them as the highest quality, middle quality, lowest quality, mobile quality, which are going to be usually very, 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 like, not very good in terms of, in terms of very grainy, very, but you, you can hear. You'll be able to hear the audio, you, depending on the production and how high it is, you'll be able to see it. And it, I think I, I don't really work on the sort of mobile stuff, but it may have improved since I last looked at some of the mobile versions because as, as uh, you know, smartphones have increased. But there'll be a number of different versions, maybe four, five, or six even, um, that they'll produce. So the highest one, which is the one that is going to be the right, the one that they would probably would prefer people see, but there'll be a mobile one which you can just download on your phone and, and not sort of kill your phone. Yeah, I, I would say that when it comes to the mobile uh, strategies of the Shabab, it needs more research. Simply, there is a lot of research to be done there, and, and, and not only the Shabab, but also yeah, other And they places. haven't had, they don't have something like ISIS where it has apps. Yeah. I mean, literally apps. There's an, I mean, there's a very, inter I mean, if it wasn't so, I think there's, a, there's one for children to learn the Arabic alphabet. There's one to teach them. I, I think they're, yeah. I and think the Taliban has one as well. The Taliban, at least it used to, it had, it, it's been dueling with, I think, uh, the app store about whether it has a, a media, uh, it has, I mean, it has, it has uh, like WhatsApp accounts, it has in various, the Taliban has them in like five or six languages, from Dari to Pashto to Urdu, Arabic, and English. I think the revenue st question is actually very important because, uh, and I completely agree with Chris, uh, Christopher here, because a lot of people see these global uh, financing uh, channels, and uh, some people talk about ivory, it's really doubtful that there is an ivory connection there. Some people talk about these big revenue streams. Uh, Shebab, you know, the general trademark of the Shebab is that it's cheap in operations and makes it able to finance itself locally. And uh, sometimes when you highlight these more conspiratory international sources, it's highlights, uh, it removes away the focus from simple things you can do. So close to Kismayo, Shebab is thrown out of Kismayo. Close to Kismayo, they control areas. If you want to go into Kismayo with Shercoal, for example, you need to go through Shebab areas. They will tax you. On the roads, they will come and put up a checkpoint. Then they tax the people coming there. And then the Amazon will throw them out. And then uh, Shebab pulls out. And Amazon pulls back to the bases. And then Shebab will come back. So they can tax like this locally. Uh, and you know what? If you sit in the Mogadishu, if, you're, if you are a businessman or sometimes woman inside Mogadishu and you have to go through Shebab control areas, it's a wise thing to pay them because they can destroy your operations if you are going to reach through Somalia. So I think, uh, you know, what you have in Somalia, and this is the key to solving the Somali conflict. I think what you have in uh, Somalia today is a kind of semi-territorial control by the Shebab. If you look into their attacks, they are, so, they are in theory behind enemy lines. Some, most of their heavy attacks are in theory behind enemy lines. Why? Because there are no really enemy lines. You know, the way it functions is that you have the various Amazon forces liking to enjoy their life in the garrisons. So they are not really that interested in securing the villages. So they will come to a village, hold the village, then pull back to the base, and then the Sheba will come, kill the supporters that uh, seemingly supported Amazon. And then, of course, if you are a local in the countryside, 
you have to relate to the Shabab. You try to marry into the Shabab. Your daughter can create some kind of peace. You marry it up to the Shabab leader. You can send somebody to the Shabab to negotiate. You can send your sons into the Shabab because uh, then maybe they won't kill you next time they come to your village. So you have to relate to the Shabab that they are still do, uh, in a way that they're still doing governance. And this has to be fixed. Uh, otherwise, the Shabab can go, they can go on for quite a while. Um, and it's not without relevance for the United States. You know, I think when you talked about some of the videos that focused, it hasn't been efficient so far, but the, 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 one of the most interesting aspects of the Sheba for the United States is all the time the kind of propaganda about the lone wolf killer. You can do this. You don't need to come to us. You can do this. You can act on your own. So far, it hasn't been that efficient. So far, they face some big defeats by IS internationally. You know, the people from Minnesota that went to the Shebab, they stopped going to the Shebab. They started to go to the Islamic State instead. But it, still, you have that voice saying over and over again, you can do this back home. You can attack these malls. You can do this back home. And that's, that's, uh, that's probably one of the more. I think, with the, with the, there, there, I think there is a difference, though, between um, I mean, which we see where ISIS claims all of these things, which it, some of which it has some connection to, some of which it may probably doesn't have any connection to at all. Um, whereas, to me at least, a lot of the lone wolf stuff coming from Shabab seems to be, they really want people to go there. They still really want people mm. to go there. And the lone wolf thing is kind of uh, really, uh, I think in some cases, like in the, the sort of in the Westgate video or with the, the, the film they did about the, the, the murder of Lee Rigby was kind of more for a, Propaganda media effect and an actual really interest in having, mm. and you know they always say yes if you can't come here you can do this but really we would like you and if you look at their if we look at their other media they really want people still to go there yeah, yeah. they but would you. prefer it whereas ISIS I think has a different kind of interest in terms of projecting an image of being everywhere but nevertheless you have, yeah, you have this repetition of this kind of message they, over and over again yeah. yeah. That's very difficult, especially the externally aimed media. So w one of the reasons I, I wanted to include sort of events, communal social events on the ground is that uh, to, to widen kind of the media media or the messaging, let's call it, perspective as these media, or sorry, these Shabab organized communal events, I think are, are on the domestic side particularly, very, very important and maybe one of the primary uh, ways sort of not only to broadcast the message, but also demonstrations of power. So even after they had withdrawn from Mogadishu, withdrawn from other areas until they were 
you know, withdrew also from, from Barawe. That became their center for about a year and a half. And, and, but even now in sort of the more rural areas, they have these, you know, fairly respectable, especially for rural areas, you know, attendance for, uh, you know, the Eid al-Adha prayers, for example. That this is another way of their kind of demonstration of, but it's one that they don't really highlight on the external media so much especially now, but it's hard, it's very difficult in terms of some of the, the external, particularly the externally A-media to know who exactly is consuming. We know that some of their affiliate groups in Kenya, they'll be kind of cross-pollinization, if we can think of it that way, in terms of referencing and things like this. And also from the earliest Shabab films, there's cross-pollinization from, particularly from Al-Qaeda films and also from, from certain particularly charismatic, important uh, ideological figures like uh, Omar Abdurrahman, the blind sheikh, and uh, you know Abdullah Azam, these people. So we see it where sometimes in some of the earliest Shabab films, they'll take whole parts of an Al-Qaeda film and they'll put it in their own film and then they'll package their own narrative around it. So in terms of the inter... But it's hard to tell in terms of like who... And also people have tried, you know, the number of downloads, this kind of thing. It's difficult because then you have to... Some of the people downloading them are not going to be Shabab supporters. Some of them, like, I'm not a Shabab supporter. Steg is not a Shabab supporter. Bronwyn. But we may download it. So that's going to skew the, the figures. And the I think the same problem, people have had some of the same difficulty with ISIS. It may be easier because they have such a large, like, particularly on social media in terms of accounts, where Shabab always maintained really one or two at a time. And then it's really kind of stopped, at least on Twitter, it's really kind of stopped after Westgate. Uh, Yes, uh, yes, and uh, each day I, I listened to it yesterday. So the, the world today is coming each day uh, until on Fridays. Fridays it doesn't broadcast. But uh, the, the range of uh, Andalus is no limited, so they can barely get it uh, in Mogadishu. Uh, so it has been somewhat limited, but uh, it's hard to say how many is actually listening. Uh, radio is important in Somalia, though, because it's an oral culture and it's cheap to get. Uh, and uh, I think it's good that you highlighted some of the events I think because they don't limit. It's interesting also that the Shabab leadership doesn't limit itself to its own, uh, particularly domestically on the ground. So Ali Rage, the spokesman, will or uh, Abdel Aziz Abu Musab will talk to all kind of media, Somali, including some Al Jazeera sometimes. Uh, as well, like they don't limit the access to, to Ali Rage or to some of the other leaders only to its own media. I think perhaps recognizing that there are limitations to so its own. You have some internet sites that are not really Shebab, but they are really good at getting Shebab uh, highlights. Uh, and uh, these events is perhaps also very important. And this is both hard for me and Christopher to map because of the oral side of Somali traditions. So you know a lot of the uh, messages, it's transported orally, and they're very efficient in doing that. Very efficient. So, absolutely. And I might add uh, conspiracy theories. And the Shebab is also very good at conspiracy theories. Yeah. And Godane, for example, um, you know, building on people like Bin Laden or Zawahiri, uh, uses um, well, reference Somali poetry or sort of very specific you know, historical poetry, and interestingly, often when it's, even in sort of Shabab translations of its own material, they don't translate this kind of stuff. So it seems that they only really, it's only there for a very, very domestic or Somali audience and not for sort of even supporters who may be 
uh, Arabic speakers. They don't translate it into other languages. And, and the same in Swahili. So for example, yeah. in, in the, uh, some of their stuff from when they were celebrating the affiliation, formalizing of the affiliation with Al-Qaeda in 2012 in Kismayo, some of the Kenyans there recited poetry uh, praising Godani, for example, or Zawahiri in Swahili, right? Or other poems which were then attached to sort of contemporary figures, but that uh, you know, a local or a, a specific audience would, would recognize and it's not really aimed externally. Mm. Yeah. They don't always even identify who they, I mean, Zawahiri, for example, sometimes will, will quote uh, very famous, I mean, poets like Mutanabbi and, and, and sort of medieval poets, but I haven't, I think even with Sudani, they don't, no, no. often they're not even identified, and I don't know enough about sort of his, no, Somali I, poetry I haven't historically seen it, to know. But some of the Al-Qaeda people will specifically reference particularly famous poets mm -hmm. from, from history. They not always like, okay, I'm citing from this, but you know, in one film, for example, Zawahiri quotes at length as Mutanabbi says, or other figures like um, uh, Iqbal, which is kind of weird for him, but you know, as Al Alama Iqbal said, blah 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 blah, and then he ties it, of course, to whatever he wants to argue. But it's and it's not even his poetry; it's 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 going to be right poetry in Persian from from yeah. uh, Indian Pakistan. Yeah. yeah, I think it's uh, if you have Somali-speaking friends, it's they put it on waves, so we, it's easy to go into Andalus twenty-four and have uh, listening to some of the strange poetry they are giving sometimes. <laughs> gentleman in the back. Uh, hi, thank you very much uh, for um, interesting um, analysis. Um, I've kind of glanced at the report and you, at the end, kind of talk about how um, the rise of ISIS has obviously led to kind of internal kind of tensions within um, Al-Shabaab. Can you talk about perhaps how the um, stylistically and stub, um, substantively, the m m media products have kind of changed in kind of the reaction to ISIS too, because they've obviously changed a lot about how terrorist groups um, c communicate. Oh, for sure. Um, the in terms of the internal divisions, I think they're really building off internal divisions that th existed before and that now have had with the rise of ISIS or the expansion of ISIS have a new potential outlet. I'm not, I'm still thinking about that, but that in 2012, uh, I mean before this, but, but certainly they come to the forefront in 2012, 2013, a number of internal divisions. The most famous one probably for us is the leaving of the most famous foreign fighter probably in Al-Shabaab, Omar Hamami, um, who is probably in the scheme of things not, I think he was more important because he kept badgering them on mm. Twitter and other things, but the real divisions that were really a threat were people like Mukhtar Robo and people like Mu'alim Burhan, sort of founding uh, Ibrahim al-Afghani, uh, founding leaders and figures in Shabab that, yes, they sided with, Goda with, sorry, with Hamami in the sense that they, but I think more as a way to criticize Godane. Um, Godane was, I mean, and his supporters maintained basically cohesion. All of the regional governors stayed with Godane at that time. Um, some of whom are still regional governors, though some of them have played musical chairs and been shifted around. One of them actually low, in Lower Shabala, Muhammad Abu Abdullah, um, in terms of how Shabab, I think probably even more so than some other groups, including ISIS, though it takes local dynamics into account. I think Shabab is much better at it. That there was a mediation, um, I can't remember the exact, earlier this year, uh, between two feuding 
um, clans, subclans. Uh, I forget which ones at the moment. Anyway, uh, Shabab mediated this, and they came up with kind of a temporary kind of agreement. But then after the fact, one of the clans was not the leaders. Elders were not happy, so they they went to the basically above his head, and they Shabab has a process. It's called the the Mazalam court, the sort of the grievances court, which is historically based as well. And they complained about uh, Abu Abdullah, and they said, "Well, we don't really like his. We don't think it's fair." So. Eventually what happened is they moved, Shabab moved Abu Abdullah to another region and they didn't alienate him. I mean, they still gave him a, a sort of a leading position, but they moved him from Lower Shabella to somewhere else. Um, but there's a, in terms of the, so there are these divisions which existed, which I think then with the rise of ISIS found a new, a new kind of voice. I mean, a lot of the, the main figures, I mean, Afghani, Mu'alam Burhan, uh, not Robo, but, but those two uh, founding members were killed, tracked down and killed by the, the Shabab internal security. Um, and then really the main Shabab figure who's defected thus far at least, Abdul Qadir Mu'min, is really kind of isolated. I mean, in, in, in sort of the Golis Mountains up north, most of the, sh of the defectors seem to be, I mean, there are some, they've made arrests in sort of across sort of Shabab controlled areas from middle Shabella Baidoa Upward, but most of the, the people, it seems, from what, from what I can tell, seem to be in the north. Um, when they did this kind of publicity stunt where they enter Kandala for, for you know, 12 hours. Uh, and they literally walk in from the mountain, walk around with, they pose, you know, with the flag, they walk along the port or the, the seafront, and then they leave when, when Puntland is beginning to sort of organize forces to kick it out. But from the Shabab side, I think the media has been actually quite muted, uh, sort of on all fronts. And this is, Bill, this is, I think, a continuation of the way they handled Hamami. They let Hamami talk for like a year. I mean, from, from March 2012 until the end of, until December, before uh, Abu Mus uh, Abdulaziz Abu Musab, uh, they had a statement, a written statement, which didn't go into a lot of detail. They said, well, it's unfortunate that there's, there's this, uh, you know, discord fitna, and we kind of regret that, and, and we, we, you know, it's unfortunate that Hamami did this, and of course, we reject everything that he's claiming, but they didn't talk ad nauseum about, like, Hamami was just bombarding them with, uh, trying to bait them, and they really didn't, some of the Shabab supporters did, but Shabab itself didn't really do much with it, and with ISIS, I think really, they've been kind of either, t not tongue-in-cheek, but kind of, you know, Rage, for example, in October or November of last year, when ISIS was really publicly ratcheting up its come join us, it's really, you have to come join us, Somali, you know, Al-Shabaab fighters and Al-Shabaab leaders. They, he said, you know, he, it was fairly long. I think it was a sort of a press conference with their internal media apparatus. It was like 40 minutes or something, but, and most of it was very generic on the surface. They're against fitna, they're against sort of internal divisions between Muslims and Mujahideen. They didn't really specifically talk about uh, we condemn Baghdadi. They were much less, they did symbolic things. They did things like in their media, they reaffirmed their, their bay'ah to Zawahri. When it became public that Mullah Omar had died in 2013, uh, not only on the ground did they do janaza funeral prayers for him, recognizing him as Amir al-Mu'mineen, which means Baghdadi is not, uh, but in their media as well, they also featured Mullah Omar, you know, eulogy for Mullah Omar, the Amir al-Mu'mineen. So, whereas other groups like the, the, uh, 
certainly Al-Qaeda, but also the, the, the Tehrik-e-Taliban Pakistan faction led by Maulana Fazlullah has outright come, up, come out with long rejections of ISIS and Baghdadi specifically, their arguments, their kind of Sharia argumentation, this kind of thing. Shabab, at least from what I've, from what I, I haven't seen anything like that. They've been much more muted, which maybe to not give so much attention to some of these. Shabab was a little bit twofold on it because you had the Amniya, the security services, uh, that was after a while quite good at striking down. There were some scaring rumors inside the Shabab about Gamudere, one of their field commanders, really. Uh, tilting between between the organizations, and that would have been scary, but they were very efficient on the ground in hitting down on sub-commanders. And, uh, you know, Moomin and his people up in the north, in, in Puntland, you know, they, in one sense, they are lucky, they are in a region where the Shabab is quite uh, weak, uh, as Christopher was saying, you know, uh, Kandela used to be a pirate city, it has three people from Puntland, three policemen, and is it easy for a small armed group to, to take over that city? Yes. How many hours is it from Busasso before, uh, where the, you have uh, Puntland forces? That's 13 hours, 13 and a half hours to drive. So, so we, you know, uh, the, it's a kind of symbolic act. Uh, so they were very good at hitting down on the IS sympathizers inside the country. Uh, what you can see propaganda-wise on the local level is that they have been very pragmatic. So you can find sympathetic uh, posters somewhere to, uh, inside the Shabbat territories towards the IS. Two occasions there has been IS material taken by the government when they attacked Shabbat bases. So there's a kind of pragmatism when it comes to what you say, but not with regards to what you do. Uh, and I think that would uh, that is basically con uh, going to continue. And I, I think uh, what we have done for the last 10 years is actually to underestimate the internal discipline of the Shabab. And I think they, they are quite good at keeping uh, internal ranks. When you had the split, they managed actually to end, Gudana managed to end on the top of that split, you know, easily. Mukhtarobo, what's he doing now? He's running around in Bai Bakul. Nobody really cares because he's marginalized. He doesn't want to go into uh, proper negotiations with the government either, so he's, he's just tumbling around. I think uh, that is the state of the Shabab, propaganda-wise, a little bit pragmatic when it comes to discipline and internal order, ruthless. You know, he really striking down on it and, and so far staying on top of it. And my prediction is that they will stay on top of it in the future as well. When this is said, you had a small period where you saw some kind of influence also on some of the propaganda material. So you had these executions on the beach that a lot of people would say was uh, IS inspired. But no, I think they've been sliding yeah, more back to the one, old days. They've been, they're very controlled about showing violence, especially against locals, yeah. unlike ISIS, actually, even in terms of the law and order. They report on this domestically. We implemented the hadud for whatever, theft or whatever, murder, things like this, on zina, uh, on such and such a figure. They'll often identify them, what the punishment was, where it was carried out. It's always done in public. Um, but they don't film it usually. There's two examples. This is one. The, the, another one, to find another one, at least officially in terms of it, that, that, that they recorded and, and, and broadcast externally, was back in 2009 where they executed two, two men that they accused of spying and or working with Amazon or the government. Um, and that, I think, is a different class of kind of spies or a different class of, of sort of offender in terms of this kind of, yeah, wanton kind of literally kind of ISIS style. It's very different that. from the yeah, Not that ISIS style. is the only group that, I mean, that does it, but yeah, that it, it's just one-off weird yeah. kind of thing. It seems to be, if it's not kind of a clear thing. Uh, it was strange to conduct It's not a, a regular thing. 
It was strange to conduct the research in the northeast of Kenya because when you asked a lot of the radical youth, they will clearly have IS sympathies. Uh, sympathies. And, and uh, then you ask them, why don't you do anything about it? And several of my field researchers also participated in this. And they would say that they are afraid of the Shebab. They believe that the Shebab have bought out the police locally. They control the local sheikhs. They have infiltrated the local society. So they don't want to push their IS agenda because they are afraid of the Shebab, which is a kind of big paradox. And I think also maybe that might explain why uh, Shabab media has not been as upfront as ISIS media. ISIS, pro-ISIS media in Somalia has been, so when we go back to, to October of two, last year with Mu'min's Bea, it's a really crappy recording. I mean, it's very difficult it's even. Then it's, it's months and months and months and months and months until April actually, I think April, March, I think April, where they release a film. And it's literally Mu'min with like, 10 or 12 people, mostly boys, on a barren plane. And this, it's, it has some grandiose mili military training camp of whatever. And it's like, but it's like Mu'min walking with like 10 people. And then it's another months and months and months and months until, until the last Eid where they have another uh, you know, ISIS-affiliated media or ISIS media outlet, which releases another film, which, again, which is more the most sort of uh, polished, but basically it's still only, in terms of messaging, they feature a number of different foreign fighter, uh, sorry, a number of different fighters speaking in a number of different languages, and Mu'min is there, and then you see them do the Eid prayer, and that's about it, right? That's the most polished. So there's this long gaps where Shabab has all of the, the, net, the security apparatus in place, the governance, so the governing, quote unquote, if we call it that, or the control mechanisms in place, the media mechanisms in place, the local relations sort of mechanisms in place. And even when they enter Kandala, the ice pro ice moment people, um, at least according to the reporting, the local elders said, no, you can't, you have to leave. And they said, no, we'll do whatever we want. But then when push came to shove, they left. They, when, rather than be kicked out, because that would, would probably have, have ruined, out. that would have been ruined, ruined the media, I think, effect. Mm -hmm. It's much better, you see them, you know, walking, and then they withdraw, I think, at, you know, early in the morning, right, under cover of kind of darkness. Yeah. So. And perhaps Somalia's most efficient military unit, you know, it's in Bargalu, which is 14 hours away, uh, which is the uh, Puntlan Coast Guard, and which is trained by the Emirates. So it's, they wouldn't have stand a chance, I think. Well, I think that we could, we could carry this conversation for a long time. But I want to thank you both uh, tremendously, you. because it's rare that we are able to have a, a really granular analysis of, of this nature. And I hope that the next time you're in the US, you let us know so that we can reconvene um, and benefit more from your extensive and really impressive knowledge on this Thank subject. You. Thank everyone uh, for being here, and you Thank in you. particular. Thank you.